$586,300. How do you measure an election loss? This week, it's just me and Mac, and we're back to tell you about all the stuff we missed while we were talking with guests the past three weeks. We'll look at campaign finance disclosures, the new warehouse park, public washrooms, or the lack thereof, and much more. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 177. We've had guests the past few weeks, so we haven't been getting into the regular council minutia. As luck would have it, council is off this week, giving us plenty of breathing room to look back over the past few weeks and see what was it that these people actually did. Or at least the things that we found interesting. But before we get into all of that, we of course need to get into the rapid fire segment. Edmonton is reopening 10 of the closed LRT washrooms and adding 12 mobile washrooms. But experts caution that washrooms won't help. Only diapers can assist when the oilers inevitably shit the bed. A mental health study has shown that Albertans are feeling less empathetic towards one another than at the start of the pandemic, which is something that honestly makes me so mad about these stupid people who are ruining our province by being dead. 24-7. Seriously, I could not even care less if these unempathetic people just disappeared right off the face of the earth and took their stupid backwards views with them. I don't have time to deal with or try to understand their garbage or why they act like that. F*** them. Edmonton mayoral candidate Michael Oshry contributed nearly a quarter of a million dollars to his own mayoral campaign, a filed disclosure revealed this week which puts him at a staggering $15.40 of his own cash per vote earned. Political scientists note that while such personal contributions are unheard of, and illegal, Oshry's fourth place finish is likely due to him paying people only the minimum wage to vote for him, when Edmontonians truly have more of an appetite for a living wage. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Life as a business owner can be hectic, to say the least. Oh, Mac, this copy was written for you. It's made um, for me. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Alberta Blue Cross apparently understands your plight, and they offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. And even better, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time on any device. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business, and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. You can learn more about your options at ab.bluecross.ca. Well, Mac, right off the bat, as we're recording this Thursday, May 5th, it was an exciting day when we got the first drop of campaign disclosures, which is an exciting day specifically for nerds like us. <laughs> well, it's the first article written about the campaign disclosures. We've seen these trickle out actually over the last month or so. There's still a shocking number that are under review. So these are supposed to have been filed by the end of March. We still haven't seen all of the campaign disclosures, but we do have some of them. And CBC helpfully wrote about some of the ones that have been reviewed and have been posted publicly, including mayoral candidate and former city councillor Michael Oshry's campaign disclosure. Now, normally we wouldn't delve into the campaign disclosure of a fourth place mayoral finisher who got sub 10% of the vote. This one was exceptionally interesting, though, because Michael Oshry, the noted wealthy businessman, contributed a quarter of a million dollars to his own campaign. And now, for those of you who are thinking, hey, the Local Authorities Election Act only permits a $10,000 personal contribution. Yes, listener. Yes, it does. <laughs> 223250 of his own dollars. 
He also raised 300 some thousand. So he spent a total on his campaign of $586,300, $267, hence the title of this episode, which includes a slight deficit of nearly $10,000. So he spent, if you do the math, Troy, $40 per vote for his 14,500 votes. And that's an expensive per vote total. But I think it's also very interesting to note that per vote, he spent personally $15.40 of his own money. That That is a shockingly high number. This is contrasted to the mayoral winner, Amarjeet Sohi, who spent $6.20 per vote, which is still... A lot of money to pay per vote, but well, less of that of his own money. That's his. Uh, that's his total amount. Sure, yeah. So even less personally. I think forty is higher than six dollars and twenty cents. I think I can. <laughs> I can manage that math. It's much higher, indeed. Uh, so ten thousand dollars is the self-funding contribution limit. You can be fined for contributing more. You can also be fined for not clearing up your deficit within sixty days. So he may still. I suppose, clear the deficit of $10,000, but only by contributing even more of his own money. Yeah. And so there's a couple points here that I want to address. The first is that the fines laid out by the Local Authorities Election Act, to our reading, max out at $10,000. Yeah. Oshri contributed a quarter of a million dollars, and the penalty for doing so is less than what GST would be (laughs) on that contribution. If you're already contributing a quarter of a million dollars... $10,000 as a fee to be allowed to do that, it's sort of chump change. What this really highlighted to me when we were talking in the pre-show is a pretty big gap in the Local Authorities Election Act. The act is pretty clear that individuals can only contribute $5,000 to a campaign and the candidate can only contribute $10,000 to a campaign. The act is also clear that if your campaign runs a deficit, which it is allowed legally to do, that deficit must be cleared within 60 days. What the act doesn't prescribe is, well, what happens if you don't? You're a candidate that overspent in good faith. You know, you had a website up that was taking pledges for contributions. You had in your books that you had like $500,000 of contributions that's going to be coming in. You take out a loan for the bank for half a million dollars, and then you run your campaign, and halfway through someone really impressive declares and all your support dries up and now you're short 250k. You know, in this scenario, you can't ask individual people for more than $5,000. Even in a deficit scenario, individuals can't contribute more than 5k, and even in a deficit scenario, the candidate can't contribute more than 10k. If your support has dried up, well, how are you going to clear that deficit? And especially if you finish fourth, you're not going to go ask people for money after the fact to clear up the deficit, right? It's not going to happen. All of those things he can do, as you say, he can go to the bank, he can take out a loan, he can spend that money. Acting in good faith is an interesting phrase to use there because most candidates, in my experience, don't ask for promises of donations. They just ask for (laughs) donations, right? You either donate to the campaign or you don't. In this hypothetical, if uh, Michael Oshry was counting on getting $500,000 in donations and didn't, that sounds pretty risky and outside of the normal operation of things, no? I do not think this is the situation that Oshry was in. My read of the situation, especially with his campaign saying, nah, everything we did was fine, is that Oshry just planned to, I assume he would have loved to have raised that money because you don't get rich by throwing away your money. But I think he had always planned if he can't fundraise for it, 
he's just going to pay it because, you know, as a successful businessman, he's got Firma Foreign Exchange, which he sold uh, recently for quite a chunk of change. You know, it would be a reputational hit for him to say, oh, I got fourth. My tail is between my legs. And also I mismanaged the finances on my campaign. So please bail me out the public. Like that's not a good look for him. And I can understand why he wouldn't do that. But the result is he's highlighted a pretty glaring hole where rich people can sort of buy local elections and spend a lot of their own money and get away with it with just nothing more than a barely a tap on the wrist, let alone a slap on the wrist. For sure. There's a couple other things I want to talk about in the candidate disclosures. The interesting part that you also bumped on is that average spending across the board of successful candidates was way down this time. Yeah. So in 2017, council candidates who were successful, candidates who were elected to council, spent about $65,000 on average on their campaigns, significantly more than this time, which was just $38,000 on average. So council seat winners of that 38, on average, about 5,700 of it was their own money, but significantly less spent in 2021 compared to 2017. One thing I will note, though, if you look at these successful candidates and their spending, while across the board, it is generally a little bit lower than it has previously been, there are a couple outliers that really drive down the average. And that's Karen Principe, who spent about 12000 Joanne Wright, who also spent about 12000 and Jennifer Rice, who spent about 15000 And specifically with Principe and Wright, they were running in two wards with atrociously bad incumbents. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel, Troy. Let's be completely honest. Councillor Mobanga was not a good councillor. He was not competent, nor was he engaged in his community, and his community rightly caught on to that. Agreed. That ward was ready to throw out their councillor, and she provided a good enough campaign to really get those wheels going. And I think the same can be true of Karen Principe. John D. from Ward 3, friend of the podcast, He did not impress on council. He had taxpayers pay for his MBA. He tried to ban using a phone while existing and walking (laughs) around. Like It was bonehead decision after bonehead decision was John D's voting record. And so I think voters noticed that. That was reflected in the ward. And of course, Jennifer Rice won in E.P. Kokanipiozzi by 42 votes over Rhiannon Hoyle, who spent 75 thousand dollars i'm not going to break down the electoral math of what exactly happened in that election and was there or was there not vote splitting but you know if votes switched by 43 votes we'd be looking at that ward and talking about how this is bringing up the average spending sure definitely spending was lower across the board i think to say that this indicates a trend about lower campaign spending in the city of edmonton isn't the right takeaway with this set of data. I think that this set of data more strongly showed what we already talked about in the election episodes, that this was an election about change and about getting rid of incumbents. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think you're probably right about that. Uh, You mentioned uh, John D. from Ward 3. He is one of the councillors or mayoral candidates who has filed a disclosure statement, but who is still under review, as I mentioned off the top. So Aaron Paquette as well is still under review. Aaron Mobanga, Kim Cruschel. One other thing about this CBC article, Troy, that really stood out to me, uh, we've been talking about mayoral and council candidates, but of course we also elect school trustees. And uh, they noted that successful public school trustees spent about $8,000 on their campaigns on average. And then the next sentence killed me. Catholic trustees spent much less with four candidates not spending any money. 
<laughs> maybe because they were acclaimed. <laughs> I do not think the problem with the Catholic school board is campaign financing. Uh, I'm going to put that hot take out there. <laughs> of course, there will be no filed campaign disclosures for the Ward 73 by-election in the Catholic school board because the Catholic school board is opting not to run a by-election, uh, which means that I, dear listener, will not be sitting on the Catholic school board at least this term. <laughs> that would have been so entertaining. Speaking of some stuff that smells pretty bad, uh, let's talk about public washrooms. We had talked previously about City Council approving the plan to close 18 transit station washrooms since we have heard they have maybe backpedaled maybe just continued on their existing plan 10 of those washrooms will now reopen and an additional 12 mobile trailer washrooms will be opening for people to relieve themselves yes effective may 2nd they said they were going to reopen 10 now the locations of the 10 northgate south campus kingsway castle downs meadows lewis farms heritage valley clairview Southgate, and Central. One of those is downtown. Most of those are not in the core. I say again, we have so many public washrooms already built within our core neighborhoods that are simply locked and closed all the time. On the same day that the city made this announcement on May 2nd, there was a popular tweet that was shared. I don't know if you saw that, Troy, for the oh, public washrooms it. in Churchill Square. Someone had done a number two outside the door because it was locked and for good measure smeared it all over the door and honestly good for you good for that person right people have to go to the bathroom i don't understand why we can't just open these bathrooms i would be so embarrassed and i'm sure the bureaucrat who had to do this you know is just doing their job but i would be so embarrassed if i was the one that's had to suggest that the solution to this problem is to get 12 mobile washrooms to put around the city. Mobile washrooms, which I might add, aren't accessible. No, let's just call these porta potties. This is what they are, right? Well, Mac, at least between 10 p.m. and 9 p.m., you will have a solution for some people. You can use this uh, trailer porta potty. The interesting thing I'll note is that those times that were given are extended during Oilers games. Yeah, if you're a fan, you can go to the bathroom anytime, but if you're not, you got to wait till 10 o'clock in the morning. I have to think that there's a, something a little bit insidious about that. Let's consider the people who truly need public washrooms tend to be the people who don't have washrooms in their homes because they're unfortunately houseless at the time or they're transient in housing. When we say we're installing these mobile washrooms and we're doing extended hours for game nights, it makes it feel like we are catering to an Oilers fan who had too much beer rather than someone who so needs to go that they have to do a number two in front of Churchill washroom and smear it on the window. Like those are yes. two very different target demographics. And I feel like the city is only targeting the one, which isn't the problem that we're hoping to solve. Yeah. And I guess I shouldn't have said number two. It's poop. Everybody poops. This is what we teach. Everybody, kids. Poops. Everybody poops, right? It's, it's just a fact of life. I think we should have both, right? I mean, as someone who lives on 104th Street <laughs> and heard the uh, joyous fans uh, on Thursday or Wednesday night this week after the, the Oilers won the second game, dominated that game. They were quite loud and happy into the night. Uh, that's all good. I get it. It's playoffs. You know, I would be glad to have some washrooms on the street because I'd rather they go to the bathroom in the public washroom than pee all over the condo buildings, for example. And, you know, people have to go. They have to go. But I don't understand why we can't do that. And also have these public washrooms available 
beyond these hours for all of the other human beings in our city that need to poop. Well, speaking of taking a piss on everything good, uh, Lauren Gunter said that is what is going to happen to the new downtown warehouse park. Now, you and I were both very excited by this announcement, I'm sure, because downtown is going to be replacing a series of parking lots with a public park. This is the parks and rec pit into park win moment. This is everything good in a nutshell. And of course, we're about to rain on some of the parades with some nitpicks. But I think overall, this was a project that we're very excited about and represents very positive change for our downtown. This is a sea of gravel, gross parking lots that will be turned into hopefully very functional, vibrant green space to support all of the residents who already live downtown, all of the residents that the city in its plans hope to attract to downtown with the new towers and things that will go around this park, you know, as well as serving visitors and people who want to come to downtown for events and things like that. So yeah, I agree. Very exciting to see this. We've obviously known that the city has been planning this park within the Central Warehouse District for quite some time, but we're now at the point where they've put some design ideas forward and they're running a survey to gather feedback from. And I think it's fair to say we have some feedback. The first piece of positive feedback, this park allegedly will have a permanently installed washroom that will be open and operational to the public. Troy, you know what other park has a uh, public washroom <laughs> that is meant to be open and available operational to the public? Oh, where, Mac? Oh, Borden Park. We've won awards for it. Awards never open. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a park built for downtown residents, filling an obvious need. But one thing that's missing is a playground. Families live downtown, and yet the park feels like a rendering that you'd see on worldsbestcities.com, but not necessarily like a place that you'd actually use to take your kids. No, I mean, any green space that we add downtown is a great thing for people who live in towers. We do not have backyards. So going to these parks is kind of like, you know, the suburban uh, going into the backyard, right? And so we need these green spaces for all of the folks who live here. And we have some of these now. So Alex Dakota Park on 105th Street has the community garden, has a dog run in it. It's got some pear trees and things like that. It also lacks any kind of play structures or anything like that. You know, I take my daughter there and we do get to run around in the park and that's all good, but it would be really nice to have a playground there. The closest playground downtown is by the public school archives in McKay Park. And there is a little playground there that the Downtown Community League was instrumental in in uh, making happen for us. It's got a little slide. It's got these, you know, sort of hill things that uh, kids can run up and down or in the winter sort of slide down. Uh, it's got a climbing structure and it's got one, you know, really big tire swing. So it's fine. It's nice to have that. It's a good amenity, but it's not the same as, you know, you go to Borden Park or you go to Oliver or some of these other surrounding neighborhoods that have really, really nice play structures. If we're going to attract as many people as the plans call for to downtown, there's going to be kids we're going to need some play structures. And so I think it would be fantastic to have a real, actual, functional, permanent, you know, play structure in the park. In the survey, the city has proposed two options. One is, you know, a playground with actual equipment and everything. And the other is 
landscaping, I guess, like hills and things worked into the park that are kind of like play structures. And, you know, I think we should have both. I think we should be making this park functional for the people who spend time downtown, the people who live there, the people who work there, the people who are there all the time. And part of that means having a washroom, of course, as we said, but also a playground. And not to make this only about kids. I'm a fully fledged adult and Hazeldean Park with all the trains, I go there all the time and climb on stuff. It's fun. I'm an adult and I'm allowed to have fun too. And oh yeah, I mean, this is one of the greatest things about taking your kids to the park is you get to go on the swings and stuff yourself, right? It could be lots of fun. They have also suggested in the survey, maybe having some exercise equipment for adults, which is a popular thing uh, in parks, especially elsewhere in the world, right? Kind of like a, a treadmill thing or an elliptical type thing, you know, in the park so that if you want to do some exercise, you can. And I'm always amazed when I travel that I, when I used to travel before the pandemic, that these things would always be full of people actively using them. So yeah, I'm all for that. Uh, one other note on this park. I've seen many a complaint on twitter.com of people upset. We should be filling potholes or repaving the white mud. This park is funded by the Community Revitalization Levy, which we've done a whole episode all about CRLs. You can learn about that, a link in the show notes. But part of the CRL means that the uplift in tax has to be spent within the CRL. So that means we can't use the CRL money to pave the white mud or to nope. fix potholes in Windermere. It has to be spent downtown. This is literally the perfect CRL project. And it's something that has been part of what the CRL promise was, right? We build this arena, we get some towers, and we're going to be able to build some green infrastructure to make downtown a better place to work and live. And so here, we've got to follow through. The city also followed through with their Summer Streets program reopening for another year. Uh, this is a program that you may not know by the name Summer Streets. You may have known it as temporary spacing lanes or Mike Nichols emergency bike lanes. But it's the program by which we have during COVID since 2020 closed down particular streets. You know, for example, the lane on Victoria Park Road or on Saskatchewan Drive or on that bus lane that goes up Calgary Trail and by the Save-On and up by uh, Wilbert McIntyre Park. And also, during early COVID, it closed neighborhood streets. Didn't necessarily close in the traffic, but you might recall seeing shared streets, 20 kilometers an hour. This is designed for spacing to get people out into the street, to get people out into the community. And now we've seen this get consistently whittled down every year. We hear the city every year saying we've gotten so much positive feedback. And mm -hmm. indeed, this year, the city said, we've heard so much positive feedback that summer streets are back again for another year. With the three places, Saskatchewan Drive, Victoria Park Road, and that bus lane. Just three locations, 40 kilometers an hour, not 20 kilometers an hour. And none of the places that this was widely positively received, as you pointed out in the past. And on top of all of this, the city says this is now part of Vision Zero Street Labs program. Troy, I thought Street Labs was a program for citizens who wanted to do things proactively to make their streets safer and more livable. Not for the city to use as a dumping ground for good ideas that they don't actually want to implement or fund further. We've seen this in the same way where there was a recent debate about the bike lane infrastructure on the Victoria Promenade. Vision Zero Street Labs was leading the charge, but yet it felt a lot like a city project. And the community league in question said, no, nah, we didn't really have a hand in this design. 
Vision Zero Street Labs seems like something that got really rave reviews and positive buzz. And the city said, great, if we do everything branded as Vision Zero Street Labs, maybe people will stop disliking when we do things that are bad. And unfortunately, it's diluting the brand of Street Labs. But I want to comment on what you said about, you know, it is now just a few roads in places that aren't as popular. And not quite. These are popular routes. The, the, yeah, they are. The, yeah. the one thing that all three routes have in common is if you asked basically anyone where makes the absolute most sense that we should install permanent bike lanes, it's those three locations. A hundred percent. Saskatchewan Drive, for example, we had closed to one lane of traffic for well over a year and everything was fine that could be an expanded multi-use path or bike lane the bus lane going up calgary trail literally like two buses a day drive up that and in plan white it's slated to be a multi-use path victoria hill anyone who's walked up beside that road can tell very obviously that there is no way to get down that hill into that active infrastructure into Groat Road, into River Valley Road, into the golf course area. These are all very obvious sections. And what I'm starting to see is that the Summer Streets program is the city abdicating their responsibility to building safe, obvious infrastructure by just saying, hey, you'll get it for a few months in summer. And aren't you happy with that? No, we're not happy with that. Do you think there's a play <laughs> here to you know continue to do this to show again that people are happy about this and then we get into the four-year budget cycle and those things become permanent? Maybe, but I'd say it's 2022 now. The time for a pilot has long since passed on this. Mm, I think demand has been clearly shown. We're moving past demand into placating and saying, this is enough what we're doing. I fear if we do this again next year, we will never get that permanent infrastructure there because the opposition will be, well, they already get it in the summer and no one bikes in winter. And we'll have to fight that (laughs) fight all over again. Right. One other topic I quickly want to hit on is in the past couple of weeks, City Council has agreed that the snow removal budget needs a boost in a long meeting about snow and ice control. And I know, Mac, aren't they all? (laughs) You don't want to talk about snow and ice control. And neither do I, because I feel like the meeting sort of buried the lead because contained within the snow and ice control presentation was the little nugget of a fact that in the past five years, we have built 21% of Edmonton's total roads. Let me just repeat that. A full one-fifth of all roads in Edmonton were built in the past five years alone. That is staggering. That is a huge amount of money. And uh, you know what also goes up when we build more roads? Everything. I mean, uh, it's not a surprise that this would need more money, right? Yeah, it's not a surprise at all. And of course, in that same presentation, it also said in that same period, snow and ice control budget has fell 15%. So is it a shock that we all complain about snow and ice control? No, it's a guarantee. Unfortunately, what this means is, Mac, to actually get snow and ice control to the service standards that we are likely to want to expect, we're talking about in the realm of doubling the snow and ice control budget. We're already spending on the order of 50 to $60 million. Mac, I don't know about you, but at budget time, finding 50 to $60 million is hard. It's not uh, an easy thing to do, no. Yeah, expect that to be, unfortunately, a dominant conversation in the upcoming budget discussions. 
57 million dollars is what we spent this winter and the city said they used only 57 percent of their equipment because they didn't have enough money to pay for staff to operate the truck so as you pointed out it's a doubling somewhere between 42 million dollars and maybe as much as 106 million dollars to get snow control up to those standards on the budget very interesting you mentioned that because yes number one finding that much money at budget time is really challenging the other thing about this year's budget is that we're supposed to be incorporating the carbon-based budget into these decisions, which I don't know if you saw this, Troy, but the city won an award for this week. I don't recall seeing much carbon-based budgeting happening yet, but somehow we have already won an award for it. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that building more roads and operating expensive gas-guzzling equipment to clear them in the winter is not going to go very well, go very far in the carbon-based budget. While they're at it, why don't they just give us a Nobel Peace Prize for our carbon-based budgeting? <laughs> this has really hit home because, you know, we had a discussion with councillors Michael Jans and Ashley Salvador quite recently. There were comments about, you know, we have already annexed a lot of this land. We're going to sprawl outwards yeah. at least a little bit. We're, we're going broke already as a city. We cannot financially sustain this level of road construction, not without doing something radically different. I hope this carbon-based budgeting has a positive effect. I hope that we see sort of radical transformational change. But I hope most of all that we give this 21% roads in the past five years the coverage it deserves. Why exactly was that buried in a report about snow and ice control? That should be top of mind for every piece of budgeting that we do, because this is how we go bankrupt. It's the popular Twitter meme, you know, I'm spending $40 on groceries and $6,000 on candles. Please help me. My uh, family is starving. <laughs> you know, there's an elephant in the room and the elephant is our road infrastructure. Ironically, if the elephant was on our road infrastructure, it would probably do less damage than cars. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you react to that statement? Well, we're out of time, Mac, but there's a couple other things on our notes, so we're going to burn right through them. The high-level bridge is due for replacement, and city planners have said, you know what's an option that we're going to legitimately present to city council? Tearing down the high-level bridge. You think that's going to happen? Never going to happen. I'm sure they put that in as a distractor or maybe a way to build support for this in the in the, the mind of the public. But it is a little shocking. I will agree that they put that in there at all. But, you know, it's not happening. Positive notes on that. Almost every presented option has some form of the high-level line included. A top deck for pedestrians and cyclists and maybe streetcars to have a good old ride across, which is very, very exciting. Good news, the city of Edmonton has reached its goal to have 25% of new homes be infill units. I guess we were wrong about the carbon budgeting item. Sprawl solved. We're done. We did it. Uh, maybe. Yes, this was the goal that we had in the previous municipal development plan back in 2010. It's not 100% clear to me how they've measured this 25%, but that didn't stop the infill development association and counselors from giving themselves a pat on the back and any you know anything close to 25 percent is a significant achievement considering that everybody at the time thought that that goal was out to lunch never going to happen uh zoning rules that have changed eliminating single family only zoning minimum parking requirements all of these things in aggregate really do add up to changes and future changes to the zoning bylaw which we're expecting to see this year could go even further to getting us maybe even close to the target in the city plan. The number of 
homeless people in Edmonton is expected to grow, uh, according to a city report, because transitional COVID funding for shelter space is about to expire. So many temporary shelter spaces are going to close, coupled with uh, some of the hard, hard times the pandemic has levied upon us. We're expected to see a increase in the homeless population. And with summer coming up, that means likely an increase in encampments. The city has rejected a plan to city sanction any encampments, though. There's about 2,800 people without a home right now. Seven to 800 of them sleep outside on any given night. As you point out, almost half of the shelter spaces is expected to drop here. The city said that a jurisdictional review on these encampments found that, you know, the idea of creating a city-managed one or, or sanctioning encampments in some way doesn't prevent people from camping elsewhere nor does that allow them to provide services to vulnerable people. Cities like Vancouver that have tried this have run into problems with safety, the city said. So they recommend against that and will be proactively or quite actively uh, dismantling encampments this summer. Well, that's a brief summary of what's happened in the past three weeks. Uh, Of course, we will tell you what's happening next week. Next week. That is how a weekly podcast works. It's episode 177. I trust you've You can understand how this works by now. Uh, And of course, after 177 episodes, you know that what happens right now is we tell you that this episode is brought to you by Northwest Fest International Documentary Festival, which is running in cinema from May 6th. Yes, that is today, the day that you are listening to the 14th and online from May 5th. That's yesterday. You're already missing it to the 15th. Northwest Fest is thrilled to finally be able to bring the festival back to the Metro Cinema this year with an outstanding lineup of some of the year's best docs and some fun surprises. So it's a hybrid affair with over 20 films screening at Metro Cinema, including the acclaimed Nick Cave music doc, This Much I Know to Be True, along with dozens of features and short films screening online. We'll also have the award-winning filmmaker Alexandre O'Felipe, and he will be in town to present his filmmaking masterclass. This event will be open to the public and is an absolute must for anyone who's ever dreamed of making their own film. You can check out the full Northwest Fest film lineup and purchase an all-access pass or single tickets at northwestfest.ca. And that's it, Mac. We did it. We did another episode. We got through it. And people had to listen to us, just us, for the whole time. Mac, I swear, if our listener stats drop through the floor this week, I'm quitting. I, I'm a, <laughs> we, we, can give, we can give Andrew Knack the podcast, and he can host Paula Simons as a guest every week. And that'll be that. People would love it, I think. <laughs> Mac, no! <laughs> so, you, dear listener, all you have to do is share this with a friend and increase the listener stats so that I keep doing this every week. And... We will check in with that experiment next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.